Our reading today is from Isaiah 2. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to the chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So people will be brought low, and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks. Hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols will totally disappear. People will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day, people will throw away to the moles and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? This is God's word.
Good morning, everyone. Please do keep Isaiah chapter 2 open in front of you. If we've not met before, my name's James. I work on the staff team here, but let's pray as we begin looking at these words together. Let's pray. Father, this Remembrance Sunday, we pray that you would lift our eyes to the hope of the future when the Lord Jesus will return and will sort everything out in this world. Please help us to look to that day and to know how to live now as we wait for it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My great-grandparents were of the generation that lived through both um, world wars and in many cases served in those wars. And when Remembrance Day came around each year, the the two great-grandfathers that I knew had very different reactions to it. Um, We sometimes had a kind of remembrance event as part of our um, primary school history classes. And one of my great-grandfathers, he was very happy to come and join in. They would invite um, people of that generation to come if they would like to and to kind of dress up and to remember what happened and sing songs and share stories of the past. He was happy to be involved with remembering. Totally different for my other great-grandfather. He actually didn't want anything to do with it. Remembrance Day for him was a very painful time. He would switch off the TV. He didn't want to watch any of the coverage. He would pace around the room agitated and the nightmares from the horrors of war would return. I guess today we might speak in language of post-traumatic stress, deeply scarred by conflict, scars that never healed. Remembrance Day inevitably confronts us with the very best and the very worst of human experience. We look back with gratitude on bravery and selflessness and sacrifice of many, but that's always seen in the context of brutal conflict that has devastated and continues to devastate the lives of many Of course, the the devastation of war and conflict has been a near constant presence throughout the history of the world. This this week I came across um, a poem written most 2,000 years ago by the Roman poet Virgil. He said this about war. He said, so many wars, so many shapes of crime, unholy Mars, the, the Roman god of war, unholy Mars bends all to his mad will. The world is like a chariot run wild. A chariot run wild, that's an evocative image. I mean, you might update the mode of transport for today, but a chariot run wild, out of control, leaving a trail of destruction in its wake. Not just nations ruined, but individuals wounded, scarred, traumatized, and who can stop it? It's out of control. The world can feel like an out of control place. And I guess for us living in the UK, what's been common for many people in many places and times throughout history has started to feel a bit more like that as there's a land war in Europe, how will that end? Will nuclear war come? Who knows? And the knock-on effects economically, politically. The world feels more and more out of control at the whim of whoever is in power. And it's very easy to despair, whether we think of what the effect of that is on specific individuals or specific conflicts or just the general state of war in the world. Is there any hope for a better future? And if there is, where can we find it? The reading we had from Isaiah chapter 2 earlier was that people who were facing increasing times of conflict, the world was feeling like that chariot run wild. The the people in Isaiah's day lived and watched as the Assyrian superpower were, were rising up and crushing the surrounding nations. And they were starting to wonder if and when they would be next. And they were working out how to live in the context of a brutal reality. And into that world setting, God speaks These words in Isaiah chapter 2, he shows Isaiah a vision of what is to come. 
And it is a vision full of hope for the future, a solid hope that you and I can trust in and live for today in the midst of a similar world full of brutal conflict. We're going to work through it um, like this. There should be an outline on your sheets. In verse 1 to 4, we'll see the promise that God will end all conflict. But verse 6 to 21, we'll see that human pride must be humbled first. And then there are two commands in verse 5 and verse 22 for the people as they wait for that day. And so we'll work through it like that. So firstly, let's have a look. God will end all human conflict. He will bring it all to an end. Verses 1 to 4 of Isaiah chapter 2 says this. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. These verses give us a glimpse into the future, the last days, as it says. Isaiah sees what God is going to do at the end of time when he establishes his kingdom over all the earth. The temple, that was where God had come to dwell on earth and rule and bless his people. And it was on a small mountain, really just a hill in the city of Jerusalem. But here in the last days, that mountain has grown and now towers over everything. The highest and most exalted picture language for God's kingdom his rule and blessing being established over all the earth. Whilst it may look like world history is running out of control, heading nowhere, God shows Isaiah behind it all, he has a plan to establish his rule and blessing. And it is going to be wonderful. As we look through, there are three features that I think particularly stand out that we're supposed to enjoy and look forward to about this future kingdom. The first is that the diversity, which you see at the end of verse 2, when that kingdom is exalted above all, it says at the end of verse 2, all nations will stream to it. That is, this is a future not limited to one single ethnic group. People from all nations will come and enjoy it. Under God's future rule, no one is to be excluded on the basis of where they're born or the color of their skin or the language that they speak. These things that so often tragically rip the world apart, well, they won't anymore. There will be a glorious diversity if you think back to, to something like the, the Olympic Games opening ceremony, where you see the sort of diversity of nations and cultures proudly put on display as they, they walk into the stadium holding their flags. And the commentators who are speaking just can't stop talking about how wonderful it is that you have all these different nations together, united. Such diversity looks so impressive, delightful. Of course, the elephant in the room is quite often the fact that many of those nations are really, well, there's, there's tensions between them. And this unity exists for a few weeks and then well, it's over. But under God's future rule and blessing, that the real pure expression of this diversity of all nations streaming to God's kingdom, that will be realized. It'll be a kingdom full of diversity. The second thing we see then in verse 3 is the morality of this future kingdom. So verse 3 says, Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This diversity of nations gathering to God's kingdom are committed to a totally changed way of life. They are asking God to teach them. And you see the foundation of that morality is in God's word. The God who is pure goodness, pure truth, pure love, pure faithfulness, he will teach the diversity of nations to walk in his goodness and his truth and his love and his faithfulness, and not just to, to teach them, but so that they live it out. 
In that world to come, hypocrisy will be gone. Those who are taught God's word will live it out. It will be a place of morality. Then the third thing we see in verse 4 is the harmony that will exist, which stands out particularly, I think, on Remembrance Sunday. Isaiah 2 verse 4. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. All the disputes and conflicts that the world have known are judged and settled by the Lord so that there can be a perfect, lasting harmony. I guess all of us know that trying to bring a conflict to an end can be very complicated. And when your your child comes home from school in a flood of tears, caught in the middle of the playground politics that goes on as friendship groups form and break up and form again quicker than you can keep your on top of. It's, um, It's complicated trying to untangle who said what to whom and how that's now affected the friendship and how your your crying child can resolve things the next day. It's complicated. Trying to make a judgment that will settle the situation seems impossible. And that's just the school playground. You intensify that to the international stage. How can we untangle the messiest human conflicts to judge them and settle them rightly? I guess conflicts we don't hear so much about on, on the news, but nevertheless cause widespread devastation around the world. Conflicts in Myanmar, civil wars in Yemen and Ethiopia, hundreds of thousands dead, fighting for years. How do you untangle that complication? I mean, certainly an organization like the UN has a a laudable aim, and no surprise that if you go to New York City in the UN building, the words of Isaiah 2 verse 4 are on the wall outside. But judging and settling human conflicts is very complicated and often beyond our power. Maybe we'll achieve an uneasy ceasefire, a de-escalation, disarmament. And it's right we pray for that. That's good. But in this world, it's so often partial and temporary. But contrast that to what God will do in the last day when his kingdom is established. Verse 4, the Lord will judge all human conflict. And because he knows all things, the tiniest details of every action, down to the human motives of our hearts, because they're not hidden from him, he is able to judge with perfect justice. And because he has all power, he can and will decisively intervene to end conflict. And the result of God's judgment is that all conflict is settled in a full and final way. You can see that by what happens next in verse 4. War ends in its totality. Not just that nations don't take up sword against nation anymore, that's wonderful, but the nations actually get rid of their swords. Nobody's hiding them in a a cupboard just as an insurance policy in case things kick off again. Weapons are just no longer needed. The weapons previously used in war are repurposed for constructive ends to plow and to prune. And not just that the weapons are got rid of, they shut down the barracks altogether. No one needs to be trained to fight anymore because there is no prospect of conflict ever again. Full and final world harmony. When God comes in his kingdom in the the last day that Isaiah sees in this future, there is full and final harmony. Conflict is ended It's worth taking a moment to to stop and and reflect on a vision for the future that Isaiah sees. The diversity of it with all nations gathering, the morality has all learned to live God's ways, and the harmony has all enjoy peace. Is that not the world that we long for today? Imagine turning on, on the news 
And instead of being bombarded by images of crime and, and conflict with perhaps, you know, one good news item thrown in at the end, instead just to hear story after story after story after story of kindness and love and service and helping one another, expressing diversity and following God's ways, living in harmony. That is an extraordinary hope, an extraordinary hope that God promises. He gives Isaiah a glimpse into the future of what this world will be. But how can this happen? Is it just an empty hope? Well, the Bible clearly doesn't think so. These words in verses 1 to 4 are repeated again in Micah chapter 4, and you get similar language in Joel chapter 3. Three times in the Old Testament, this sort of vision of the future is presented. The Bible is saying it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But how? Well, the second half of the chapter shows how God is going to bring this future about. And so we'll turn then to verses 6 to 21 and see that human pride must be humbled first. Human pride must be humbled first. So in Isaiah's vision, the camera shifts from this future day to come to the present day. And it's fair to say that Jerusalem in Isaiah's day looked nothing like that future heavenly city full of diversity and morality and harmony. Just listen to what the the city is full of in verses 6 to 9. It says, you, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to the chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. See, rather than the people gathering in the Lord's presence under his rule and blessing, they've been abandoned by him in verse 6. And the reason is because of what the land has become full of. So verse 6, again, you see political alliances, where it says embrace pagan customs. It's kind of the language of a handshake. It's a deal that they're making with the surrounding nations. We'll take some of your Philistine culture, and you'll agree to be our allies to help us, to protect us. The start of verse 7, it's full of the pursuit of wealth. How much gold and silver can they get locked away in the bank vault? Second half of verse 7, it's an arms race. Horses and chariots were advanced military technology. Today we'd say drones and nukes. End of verse 8, false religion, idols that they've made with their hands and worship as God. These things that the land was full of, the Lord had said, don't put your trust in those things. Trust me instead. Find your security in me and this hope of the future that I promise you. But instead of that, they were trusting in other things. Things that even today in in the world cause conflict. God's people were supposed to be different. They were supposed to live under his rule and blessing. But instead, we're looking for security in other things. And in the second half of the chapter, Isaiah sees that trust in those other things is at root an expression of human pride. At root, an expression of human pride. You you see that in verse 9. You get a hint of that where he says, so people will be brought low and everyone humbled. But again, through verses 10 onwards, you see again and again this language of arrogance, proud, the the lofty ones. So if you look down at verse 13, he describes the people in in terms of all the, the tall, impressive, powerful things that they could see around them the cedars of Lebanon, tall trees, the oaks of Bashan, the towering mountains, the high hills, the lofty towers, the fortified walls, the trading ships, the stately vessels. 
People considered themselves big and tall and powerful and impressive. They were proud. And that's why they turned to put their trust in things other than God. The, uh, the mention at the end of the, the stately vessels and, and the trading ships reminded me of the, the story you'll know from 1912, where a new luxury cruise liner had been just finished being made. It cost 1.5 million pounds in those days, 150 million today, a huge feat of human engineering. At 270 meters long, it's the, the, the biggest ship of the day, fitted out with state-of-the-art facilities, very desirable to travel on. Everyone wanted to be on this ship. It was described as practically unsinkable. Someone overheard the captain say, not even God could sink this ship. Pride in human wisdom, pride in human strength. And we'll know the end to the story of the Titanic as it sunk. Pride that says, what I can see around me, the, the things I can put my hope in, the strength of human beings. At root, God says, trust me, don't trust other things. Pride says at its root, I don't need to trust God because I've got money, I've got power, I've got weaponry, I, I can build my own kingdom. I don't need to look for God's kingdom because I've got these things myself that I can build a future on. Of course, the, the vision of the future that Isaiah saw can never become reality in whilst proud humans seek to build our own empires and kingdoms. Um, this week I started reading a, a book by the historian Simon um, Montfiore. During lockdown, um, the first COVID lockdown, he wrote um, a book, um, 1,300 pages, while most of us were struggling to, to get on with our lives and get through lockdown. He was writing a history of the world, 1,300 pages, through the first 100 or so. Who knows if I'll make it to the end, but Rather than think in terms of kind of events and in terms of ideology and, and economics, he tells a history of the world centered around the most powerful people who've ever lived. He, he connects people, families, dynasties from all around the world who've had the biggest influence upon world history. And he, he tells the story of how that progresses. But it's not the most uplifting book. As one reviewer says, it's basically a history of the world in bloodshed and megalomania because page after page, it's men and women who in their pride have tried to establish great empires and kingdoms to be the highest and the greatest in the world, often trampling on those who are weak and vulnerable instead. Human pride wants to build something great for ourselves and to ignore God and not trust him and his future that he can bring about. Of course, you don't need to be a king or an emperor to find that same root of pride in the human heart, even if it's not in world conquest, just the, the conflict and the, the power plays in ordinary human families and offices around the country caused by that same root of pride that wants to establish and dominate over others. I don't need to trust God because I've got money, I've got power, I've got strength. And with those things, I can secure my own future. But because of this, God promises a day when he will humble the proud. If you look down at verse 12, you see him talk about that day. It says this, The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. That day is also mentioned in verse 11 and again in verse 17. God has a day when human pride is going to be humbled once and for all. In that day that the proud will see what true power and true majesty and true splendor looks like. You see it repeated three times in these verses. Verse 10 talks about the, the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty arriving to humble the proud. 
Many will know the, the English legend of, of Robin Hood. How many versions have been made now? I don't know. But King Richard leaves and goes to fight in the Crusades, and his brother Prince John takes over power. And in Prince John's arrogance, he starts amassing wealth through heavy taxation. He starts outlawing the good and the innocent people. He starts crushing people with his military cronies. His position seems unassailable with money and power and strength, but it is only temporary. There's always a scene at the end where King Richard returns, and the one who truly has power and splendor and majesty, in his presence, King John's weakness is ex- Prince John's weakness is exposed. His pride is humbled and a day of reckoning comes. And God says he has a day in store when he will come in the splendor of his majesty and human pride will be humbled. The most powerful human beings will come face to face with the divine omnipotence that flung the stars into space. And in that day, the most powerful dictator, the most vicious war criminal, those who've caused all such carnage and conflict and misery in our world will flee, their weakness exposed as it says, the earth will be shaken and God acts to humble human pride. Of course, the question is, when is that day going to be? When is that day going to be? In Bible terms, we find that the day of the Lord, where God comes to humble human pride, has already come and is still yet to come. Let me explain. God came into the world 2,000 years ago, full of splendor and majesty, yet a splendor and majesty hidden from sight. As we come to celebrate Christmas soon enough, the the small helpless baby in the manger at Bethlehem, in the eyes of the world, nobody from nowhere important. Yet Emmanuel, God with us. This Jesus didn't come commanding armies and amassing wealth and living in palaces and building empires, the things that the, the greats of human history have done. No, he came in humility, not to be served, but to serve and ultimately to give his life as a ransom for many. And in the Bible, his death on the cross is described as a day of the Lord because the cross is the place where human pride was humbled. Everything that the world thinks is strong and wise and impressive is just exposed as being weak and foolish at the cross. As we realize we bring nothing to the table before God. We have nothing to offer him. But we are wholly reliant on Jesus' death in our place, bearing our sin and the judgment that we deserve. At the foot of the cross, every Christian must be humble, laying aside our wealth, our power, our religious deeds, declaring it's only through Jesus and what he has done that we can ever hope to enjoy this future with God. At the cross, every person who trusts in Jesus has their pride humbled as we realize it's only through him that we can ever enjoy that day Isaiah talks about where conflict will be over. And so in Bible terms, the day of the Lord has come with Jesus, but it is still yet to come. Jesus promises there is a day still to come in the future when he will come back to this world. And when he comes back in splendor and majesty, this time his splendor and majesty won't be hidden from sight. He will come and he will bring about what was promised in Isaiah 2, ultimately human pride being humbled. Later on in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 6, we get a picture of that day. Let me read from verse 15. It says this, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? 
Jesus promises one day he will return and he will sort out the proud mess of the world. Human pride will be humbled ultimately. And only then can God's people, those who've trusted in Jesus, come to enjoy that glorious future we spoke of earlier in all of its diversity and morality and harmony. God will humble human pride. He has done at the cross and he will do in the future. Which leaves us then with the question, how should we then live now, today? How should we live in a a world where human pride still so obviously dominates the world stage? As those who know that future promise, how should we live today, not repeating the, the same mistakes that we saw the people in Isaiah's day commit? Well, the chapter gives us two commands. If you just look down at verse five, you'll see the first, which is to walk in the Lord's light. Verse five says, come descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord." See, as we trust in Jesus today, the glorious light of this future hope is supposed to be breaking into the present darkness of this world in your life and my life and in the church. We're supposed to get little glimmers as we begin to live out the diversity and morality and harmony of that future world in the church today. We can see a church that's living in the light of this future hope where people of all different nationalities are not just welcomed in to the building but are included and valued and loved. Where people are eager to learn from God's word, not just to know it, but to live it as well. A church where people who are supposed to be fighting with each other in the eyes of the world actually choose to live together in peace as brothers and sisters in Christ, humbled at the foot of the cross. During the awful um, Rwandan genocide of the the 19. 90s, a rebel gunman entered into a, a school and ordered um, those who are of the Hutu and the Tutsi tribes to split so that they could carry out their evil. But the students in the school refused to do so. They refused to, and when they did, the, the gunman opened open fire. There was one student there whose name was Faniel. He, he survived but was injured and shot in the process. He was in hospital for a year or so, recovering. And he tells the story of how he had to wrestle with deep emotions of bitterness and questions of forgiveness, unthinkably so. But later on in 2004, he was asked to address the new students at the school, both Hutu and Tutsi, about how you could make a way forward through the mess. And he says this in his address. He said, I'm not here to deny those things happened or to tell you that they don't matter But I am here to tell you the only way forward I found is through Jesus Christ, beaten, mocked, despised, tortured. Christ, in his final words on earth, called out, pleading for God to forgive the perpetrators, and he taught us to do the same. And so today we can stand here together as brothers and sisters in him. That young man found the way forward at the the foot of the cross, and you see that the, the future light of the Lord's hope shining through him as he says those words. Of course, few will have to wrestle with questions of forgiveness as large as his. But each of us today can choose to live, not as the world lives with conflict and violence, but to live in the Lord's light, the future hope he will surely bring about, to be peacemakers today in our families and in our offices and in our church, demonstrating that we're living for that future day by bringing it to the present, the Lord's light glimmering, the future hope that he will certainly bring about breaking into the world today, demonstrating we're living for a day to come when conflict will be over. We can show we're living for that future hope by walking in the light of it today. 
The second command you get at the end of verse 22 says, stop trusting fleeting humans. Verse 22, stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? If the course of world history is not a chariot run wild, out of control, but God is bringing about his glorious eternal future, then it makes sense to trust him today. Rather than fundamentally entrusting our security to anything else, which will ultimately be fleeting. In the first place, it means putting our trust in Jesus. And then living our life, recognizing that political leaders, world empires, economic forecasts, pensions, armies, defense systems, all the things that we could easily put our hope in, whilst they can be helpful to live wisely in the world, in the grand scheme of things, they are fleeting. None of them has the power to bring about a glorious eternal future. And so you're not to make the same mistake of the people in Isaiah's day who turned from God to trusting in these other fleeting things. We are to heed the call to stop trusting in them and recommit ourselves to trusting in the Lord, the one who will one day come and humble human pride for good and who will bring about an end to all conflict and a glorious future to come. This chapter calls us to trust in him today, recommit ourselves to Jesus. Stop trusting mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Don't hold them in esteem. Look to Jesus. So as we look around the world full of pride, full of conflict, full of mess that we feel like we cannot untangle, we can look to the future and we can look to the day Jesus will come back and he will sort it all out. And in those days, he will judge between the nations, will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So let us walk in that light today. Let's pray. Father, we long for that future day when conflict will be over, where human pride will be humbled. And we praise you for the Lord Jesus, who at the cross has humbled human pride. Please help us to look to him, knowing that we don't bring anything of value towards you. But through Jesus' death, through his blood shed for us, we can come into your eternal kingdom. Help us to trust him and to live for that future day, walking in the light of it now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.